Section 11 of The World as Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1 by Arthur Schopenhauer, translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. First Book, Section 11 after this full consideration of reason as a special faculty of knowledge belonging to man alone and the results and phenomena peculiar to human nature brought about by it it still remains for me to speak of reason so far as it is the guide of human action and in this respect may be called practical but what there is to say upon this point has found its place elsewhere in the appendix to this work where i controvert the existence of the so-called practical reason of kant which he certainly very conveniently explained as the immediate source of virtue and as the seat of an absolute that is fallen from heaven imperative the detailed and thorough refutation of the kantian principle of morality i have given later in the fundamental problems of ethics there remains therefore but little for me to say here about the actual influence of reason in the true sense of the word upon action at the commencement of our treatment of reason we remarked in general terms how much the action and behavior of men differs from that of brutes and that this difference is to be regarded as entirely due to the presence of abstract concepts in consciousness the influence of these upon our whole existence is so penetrating and significant that on account of them we are related to the lower animals very much as those animals that see are related to those that have no eyes certain larvae worms and zoophytes animals without eyes know only by touch what is immediately present to them in space what comes into contact with them those which see on the contrary know a wide circle of near and distant objects in the same way the absence of reason confines the lower animals to the ideas of perception that is the real objects which are immediately present to them in time we on the contrary on account of knowledge in the abstract comprehend not only the narrow actual present but also the whole past and future and the whole sphere of the possible we view life freely on all its sides and go far beyond the present and the actual thus what the eye is in space and for sensuous knowledge reason is to a certain extent in time and for inner knowledge but as the visibility of objects has its worth and meaning only in the fact that it informs us of their tangibility so the whole worth of abstract knowledge always consists in its relation to what is perceived therefore men naturally attach far more worth to immediate and perceived knowledge than to abstract concepts to that which is merely thought they place empirical knowledge before logical but this is not the opinion of men who live more in words than in deeds who have seen more on paper and in books than in actual life and who in their greatest degeneracy become pedants and lovers of the mere letter thus only is it conceivable that leibniz and wolf and all their successors could go so far astray as to explain knowledge of perception 
after the example of Duns Scotus, as merely confused abstract knowledge. To the honor of Spinoza, I must mention that his truer sense led him, on the contrary, to explain all general concepts as having arisen from the confusion of that which was known in perception. It is also a result of perverted opinion that in mathematics the evidence proper to it was rejected, and logical evidence alone accepted, that everything in general which was not abstract knowledge was comprehended under the wide name of feeling, and consequently was little valued, and lastly that the Kantian ethics regarded the good will which immediately asserts itself upon knowledge of the circumstances, and guides to right and good action as mere feeling and emotion, and consequently as worthless and without merit, and would only recognize actions which proceed from abstract maxims as having moral worth. The many-sided view of life as a whole, which man, as distinguished from the lower animals, possesses through reason, may be compared to a geometrical, colorless, abstract, reduced plan of his actual life. He therefore stands to the lower animals as the navigator, who by means of chart, compass, and quadrant knows accurately his course and his position at any time upon the sea, stands to the uneducated sailors who see only the waves and the heavens. Thus it is worth noticing, and indeed wonderful, how besides his life in the concrete, man always lives another life in the abstract. In the former he is given as a prey to all the storms of actual life and to the influence of the present. He must struggle, suffer, and die like the brute. But his life in the abstract, as it lies before his rational consciousness, is the still reflection of the former, and of the world in which he lives. It is just that reduced chart or plan to which we have referred. Here in the sphere of quiet deliberation, what completely possessed him and moved him intensely before, appears to him cold, colorless, and for the moment external to him. He is merely the spectator, the observer. In respect to this withdrawal into reflection, he may be compared to an actor who has played his part in one scene, and who takes his place among the audience till it is time for him to go upon the stage again, and quietly looks on at whatever may happen, even though it be the preparation for his own death in the piece. But afterwards he again goes on the stage and acts and suffers as he must. From this double life proceeds that quietness peculiar to human beings, so very different from the thoughtlessness of the brutes, and with which, in accordance with previous reflection, or a formed determination, or a recognized necessity, a man suffers or accomplishes in cold blood what is of the utmost and often terrible importance to him. Suicide, execution, the enterprises of every kind fraught with danger to life, and in general things against which his whole animal nature rebels. Under such circumstances we see to what an extent reason has mastered the animal nature, and we say to the strong, ferreum certe tibi cor, 
here we can say truly that reason manifests itself practically and thus wherever action is guided by reason where the motives are abstract concepts wherever we are not determined by particular ideas of perception nor by the impression of the moment which guides the brutes there practical reason shows itself but i have fully explained in the appendix and illustrated by examples that this is entirely different from and unrelated to the ethical worth of actions that rational action and virtuous action are two entirely different things that reason may just as well find itself in connection with great evil as with great good and by its assistance may give great power to the one as well as the other that it is equally ready and valuable for the methodical and consistent carrying out of the noble and of the bad intention of the wise as of the foolish maxim which all results from the constitution of its nature which is feminine receptive retentive and not spontaneous all this i have shown in detail in the appendix and illustrated by examples what is said there would have been placed here but on account of my polemic against kant's pretended practical reason i have been obliged to relegate it to the appendix to which i therefore refer the ideal explained in the stoical philosophy is the most complete development of practical reason in the true and genuine sense of the word it is the highest summit to which man can attain by the mere use of his reason and in it his difference from the brutes shows itself most distinctly for the ethics of stoicism are originally and essentially not a doctrine of virtue but merely a guide to a rational life the end and aim of which is happiness through peace of mind virtuous conduct appears in it as it were merely by accident as the means not as the end therefore the ethical theory of stoicism is in its whole nature and point of view fundamentally different from the ethical systems which lay stress directly upon virtue such as the doctrines of the vedas of plato of christianity and of kant the aim of stoical ethics is happiness yet the ethics of stoicism teach that happiness can only be attained with certainty through inward peace and quietness of spirit and that this again can only be reached through virtue this is the whole meaning of the saying that virtue is the highest good but if indeed by degrees the end is lost sight of in the means and virtue is inculcated in a way which discloses an interest entirely different from that of one's own happiness for it contradicts this too distinctly this is just one of those inconsistencies by means of which in every system the immediately known or as it is called felt truth leads us back to the right way in defiance of syllogistic reasoning as for example we see clearly in the ethical teaching of spinoza which deduces a pure doctrine of virtue from the egoistical suum utile querere by means of palpable sophisms according to this as i conceive the spirit of the stoical ethics their source lies in the question whether the great prerogative of man reason which by means of planned action and its results relieves life of its burdens so much might not also be capable of freeing him at once directly that is 
through mere knowledge completely or nearly so of the sorrows and miseries of every kind of which his life is full they held that it was not in keeping with the prerogative of reason that the nature given with it which by means of it comprehends and contemplates an infinity of things and circumstances should yet through the present and the accidents that can be contained in the few years of a life that is short fleeting and uncertain be exposed to such intense pain to such great anxiety and suffering as arise from the tempestuous strain of the desires and the antipathies and they believed that the due application of reason must raise men above them and can make them invulnerable therefore antisthenes says life is so full of troubles and vexations that one must either rise above it by means of corrected thoughts or leave it it was seen that want and suffering did not directly and of necessity spring from not having but from desiring to have and not having that therefore this desire to have is the necessary condition under which alone it becomes a privation not to have and begets pain men learned also from experience that it is only the hope of what is claimed that begets and nourishes the wish therefore neither the many unavoidable evils which are common to all nor unattainable blessings disquiet or trouble us but only the trifling more or less of those things which we can avoid or attain indeed not only what is absolutely unavoidable or unattainable but also what is merely relatively so leaves us quite undisturbed therefore the ills that have once become joined to our individuality or the good things that must of necessity always be denied us are treated with indifference in accordance with the peculiarity of human nature that every wish soon dies and can no more beget pain if it is not nourished by hope it followed from all this that happiness always depends upon the proportion between our claims and what we receive it is all one whether the quantities thus related be great or small and the proportion can be established just as well by diminishing the amount of the first as by increasing the amount of the second and in the same way it also follows that all suffering proceeds from the want of proportion between what we demand and expect and what we get now this want of proportion obviously lies only in knowledge and it could be entirely abolished through fuller insight therefore chrysippus says one ought to live with a due knowledge of the transitory nature of the things of the world for as often as a man loses self-command or is struck down by a misfortune or grows angry or becomes faint-hearted he shows that he finds things different from what he expected consequently that he was caught in error and did not know the world and life did not know that the will of the individual is crossed at every step by the chance of inanimate nature and the antagonism of aims and the wickedness of other individuals he has therefore either not made use of his reason in order to arrive at a general knowledge of this characteristic of life or he lacks judgment in that he does not recognize in the particular 
what he knows in general and is therefore surprised by it and loses his self-command thus also every keen pleasure is an error and an illusion for no attained wish can give lasting satisfaction and moreover every possession and every happiness is but lent by chance for an uncertain time and may therefore be demanded back the next hour all pain rests in the passing away of such an illusion thus both arise from defective knowledge the wise man therefore holds himself equally aloof from joy and sorrow and no event disturbs him in accordance with this spirit and aim of the stoa epictetus began and ended with the doctrine as the kernel of his philosophy that we should consider well and distinguish what depends upon us and what does not and therefore entirely avoid counting upon the latter whereby we shall certainly remain free from all pain sorrow and anxiety but that which alone is dependent upon us is the will and here a transition gradually takes place to a doctrine of virtue for it is observed that as the outer world which is independent of us determines good and bad fortune so inner contentment with ourselves or the absence of it proceeds from the will but it was then asked whether we ought to apply the words bonum and malum to the two former or to the two latter this was indeed arbitrary and a matter of choice and did not make any real difference but yet the stoics disputed everlastingly with the peripatetics and epicureans about it and amused themselves with the inadmissible comparison of two entirely incommensurable quantities and the antithetical paradoxical judgments which proceeded from them and which they flung at each other the paradoxa of cicero afford us an interesting collection of these from the stoical side zeno the founder seems originally to have followed a somewhat different path the starting point for him was that for the attainment of the highest good that is blessedness and spiritual peace one must live in harmony with oneself now this was only possible for a man if he determined himself entirely rationally according to concepts not according to changing impressions and moods since however only the maxims of our conduct not the consequences nor the outward circumstances are in our power in order to be always consistent we must set before us as our aim only the maxims and not the consequences and circumstances and thus again a doctrine of virtue is introduced but the ethical principle of zeno to live in harmony with oneself appeared even to his immediate successors to be too formal and empty they therefore gave it material content by the addition to live in harmony with nature which as stobius mentions in another place was first added by cleanthes and extended the matter very much on account of the wide sphere of the concept and the vagueness of the expression for cleanthes meant the whole of nature in general while chrysippus meant human nature in particular it followed that what alone was adapted to the latter was virtue just as the satisfaction of animal desires was adapted to animal natures and thus ethics had again to be forcibly united to a doctrine of virtue 
and in some way or other established through physics for the stoics always aimed at unity of principle as for them god and the world were not dissevered the ethical system of stoicism regarded as a whole is in fact a very valuable and estimable attempt to use the great prerogative of man reason for an important and salutary end to raise him above the suffering and pain to which all life is exposed by means of a maxim qua ratione quaeus traducere leniter ovum ne te semper inops agitet vexet que cupido ne pavor et rerum mediocriter utilium spes and thus to make him partake in the highest degree of the dignity which belongs to him as a rational being as distinguished from the brutes a dignity of which in this sense at any rate we can speak though not in any other it is a consequence of my view of the ethical system of stoicism that it must be explained at the part of my work at which i consider what reason is and what it can do but although it may to a certain extent be possible to attain that end through the application of reason and through a purely rational system of ethics and although experience shows that the happiest men are those purely rational characters commonly called practical philosophers and rightly so because just as the true that is the theoretical philosopher carries life into the concept they carry the concept into life yet it is far from the case that perfection can be attained in this way and that the reason rightly used can really free us from the burden and sorrow of life and lead us to happiness rather there lies an absolute contradiction in wishing to live without suffering and this contradiction is also implied in the commonly used expression blessed life this will become perfectly clear to whoever comprehends the whole of the following exposition in this purely rational system of ethics the contradiction reveals itself thus the stoic is obliged in his doctrine of the way to the blessed life for that is what his ethical system always remains to insert a recommendation of suicide as among the magnificent ornaments and apparel of eastern despots there is always a costly vial of poison for the case in which the sufferings of the body which cannot be philosophized away by any principles or syllogistic reasonings are paramount and incurable thus its one aim blessedness is rendered vain and nothing remains as a mode of escape from suffering except death in such a case then death must be voluntarily accepted just as we would take any other medicine here then a marked antagonism is brought out between the ethical system of stoicism and all those systems referred to above which make virtue in itself directly and accompanied by the most grievous sorrows their aim and will not allow a man to end his life in order to escape from suffering not one of them however was able to give the true reason for the rejection of suicide but they laboriously collected illusory explanations from all sides the true reason will appear in the fourth book in the course of the development of our system but the antagonism referred to reveals and establishes 
the essential difference in fundamental principle between stoicism which is just a special form of endaemonism and those doctrines we have mentioned although both are often at one in their results and are apparently related and the inner contradiction referred to above with which the ethical system of stoicism is affected even in its fundamental thought shows itself further in the circumstance that its ideal the stoic philosopher as the system itself represents him could never obtain life or inner poetic truth but remains a wooden stiff lay figure of which nothing can be made he cannot himself make use of his wisdom and his perfect peace contentment and blessedness directly contradict the nature of man and preclude us from forming any concrete idea of him when compared with him how entirely different appear the overcomers of the world and voluntary hermits that indian philosophy presents to us and has actually produced or indeed the holy man of christianity that excellent form full of deep life of the greatest poetic truth and the highest significance which stands before us in perfect virtue holiness and sublimity yet in a state of supreme suffering end of section eleven end of book one read by mary schneider